I would wish to remind that we are in the reading of the chapter number two, and last time we've been finishing with the sutra number twenty-seven. Patanjali is just about to come telling us things about yoga. He started the chapter number two telling us things about impurities of the mind. He told us how those impurities of the mind relate to karma and to the condition of bondage of the human being. He spoke about the solution to that as the discriminative knowledge, as the constant awareness. And he is slowly, slowly coming to the point where he is showing to us that the method which he recommends, of course, is yoga. The method which can deliver the goods for him from his standpoint is yoga. That is why uh, there will be from now on more and more references to yoga in which he actually defines the practical system of yoga. Some of the things which follow will be very easy indeed from my standpoint because they are referring to basic lectures which we hold in the first month of yoga about some of the eight stages of yoga and all the rest, yama and niyama and things like this. That is why actually in this commentary which I'm making to the Yoga Sutras, I will only point to the fact that those things have been said and what their meaning, basic meaning is, but I will not go into the details. I'm sending everyone to the lectures which we are holding in the first month for elucidation of those. It's useless to just repeat the same things here when you, almost every one of you has heard those in the first month of yoga. And in the sutra number 28, he continues by saying, by the practice of the stages of yoga, impurity diminishes until the rise of spiritual knowledge culminates in awareness of reality. This is a statement which is very simple, straightforward, clear. It nevertheless contains between the lines a certain analysis of the mechanism of action of yoga. Again, he says, by the practice of the stages of yoga, so he already is warning us that it's a gradual practice, and there are stages, impurity diminishes until the rise of spiritual knowledge culminates in awareness of reality. So according to Patanjali, the obstacle which is preventing the spiritual knowledge to rise and provide awareness of reality are termed generally as impurities. Now those of you who know things of yoga, you know that impurities can mean a lot of things. We have physical impurities, we are having etheric impurities, we are having astral impurities, and we are having mental impurities. Some of these impurities refer to the first five chakras as the five elements out of which the universe is made. Then impurities refer to the sixth chakra, the mind, which is the buffer between spirit and universe. And then, of course, he says that impurities of the five elements, as well as impurities of the mind, must be eliminated so that the ultimate element, 
the pure spirit, the Purusha, the Atman should shine through, should shine forth, and then the spiritual awareness should diminish. Therefore, it is interesting that actually Patanjali at this level presents all the yoga practice as a kind of cleansing, as a kind of Kriya Yoga, as a kind of purification. He says, whatever you will do in your yoga practice is going to purify the five elements and is going to purify the mind. And then, when those two layers, the layer made of the five elements as manifestation, and the, level, the layer created by the mind as intermediary between manifestation and the spirit, when those two are cleansed, then it's like a window which is cleansed with two layers, and when both layers are transparent, then spirit shines through, Purusha or Atman shines through. It's an interesting perspective, because often we look upon this as a matter of resonance with different energies, as a matter of awakening the chakras and the nadis and kundalini, as a matter of amplifying the energy, but actually Patanjali sees it mostly in a way of cleansing. For him, the reason that the universal consciousness doesn't shine through a complete awareness of reality is actually impurity. Impurity either at the level of the aggregate elements, the five elements that build up the universe, or at the level of the mind, which is the other layer. So, it is interesting to remember this view of Patanjali of, as yo of yoga, just like purifying the inferior levels, purifying the impurities. I will not insist there are other secondary implications, but I don't want to dwell on those at this point. It's not necessary for this commentary. So, when impurity diminishes, the spiritual knowledge culminates in awareness of reality. It's like these two things are somewhat complementary. It's like you cannot increase the awareness because the awareness is always eternal, constant, the same, but you don't see that awareness because of the impurity. This automatically says that even if you have an awareness, but then you are allowing the impurity to take over, there can still come a certain level of forgetfulness. Remember, Patanjali does not say that another way is just, well, don't care about the impurity, but just rise the awareness. It's like awareness is a constant background. It's exactly like when we speak about Ananda Mayakosha, the causal body and the deep levels, that those don't really change. Those are perfect to start with, because they are of the nature of something which is beyond space and time, and which is therefore eternal. And that is why um, Patanjali actually insists on the purification aspect, like you need to act more into that sense to diminish the obstacles which prevent the spiritual light from shining forth. And the next sutra is so very straightforward, and for anybody who has been through the first month of yoga, it's a truism. Simply Patanjali then mentions his famous system of eight steps, which has made him famous in the world of yoga. He simply says, Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi. 
constitute the eight stages of yoga. In the original text, exactly those words are used, so they are not explained, they will be explained later, and simply Patanjali defines the eight levels of yoga. Any one of you should remember this elementary thing, that according to the model of Patanjali, which is not the only one, but which is the most popular along history, yoga has been presented as a process in eight stages, and all of you should be very, very familiar with the names of all those. That being the case, because in this school that lecture is done every month, and that truth is presented all the time, and everybody gets to hear about it many, many times, I feel like not going into depth into this sutra, because it simply says a thing which is common truth for anybody practicing yoga. That is why I'm going directly to the next sutra, which again brings up something very clear, because Patanjali does not waste any time. He told us what the eight levels of yoga are in this grand process of purification of it, and he immediately starts with the first of them, and he has what yama is, and therefore the sutra number 30, which does this, says, Non-violence, truthfulness, abstinence from theft, continence, and non-possessiveness are the five yamas. He uses the words ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, and aparigraha, and of course these things are again very well known. Everybody who has been preparing for our first month course knows what the five yamas and five niyamas are, and their approximate meaning, not to mention that everybody who has been going through the first month of yoga must have heard a lecture, a separate lecture, about each of the yamas and niyamas. And that is why neither the listing of them nor the meaning of each and every one of them is a mystery for anybody in this school. And that is why, again, this is just the foundation statement from Patanjali. Now, Sutra number 31 he has to make, he wishes to make a separate commentary on the yamas. As you are going to see, Patanjali makes a small difference between yamas and niyamas, that's why they are divided in two categories, and he wants to make a commentary on the yamas. <coughs> he says, being universal, Sutra number 31, being universal, they must be practiced without exception due to birth, place, time, and circumstances, and thus they, these yamas, the five ones which you just mentioned, become the great vow. In this statement, Patanjali gives a very universal dimension to his Raja Yoga. He first of all shows very clearly that people tend to bend these yamas and niyamas, he says they should be practiced without exception due to birth, place, time, and circumstance. People would say, because I am born like this and not like this, because the time is this and not this, because of this circumstance or that, the yamas, ahimsa, satyam, asteya, brahmacharya, and aparigraha, they become twisted like this. Example, given by Swami Vivekananda himself. 
If a soldier is in a battle, he says, I am not killing, I, it's just a war time, and it's something which I am doing for my country. Patanjali disagrees with this view. He says, either you are a soldier in an army and you fight for your country, or you are a street murderer, killing is killing, and murder is murder, and the karmic effects of it are just the same. And therefore, Patanjali simply says there is no exception of sex, caste, creed, birth, time, space, circumstance, when it comes to yama and niyama. This statement is very solid because it simply wants to say something like this. We yogis, or Patanjali can say, I, Patanjali, have meditated so much upon these things from the standpoint of Ajna and Sahasrara that I have reached to the ground level, to the bottom level. What I am telling to you here is not cultural, it is not historical, it is not ethnical, it is not related with something in particular, but it is something which is universally valid. Patanjali claims the yamas and niyamas which I have defined are beyond any religion, country, culture, epoch or something. He claims I have meditated. <coughs> And these are like universal laws of nature. That is why the yogis are so keen on yama and yama. Because they say in your religion, if you come from a religious environment, or simply in the society where you come from, this thing is good, this thing is bad. This thing is permitted, this thing is not permitted. And we are having a lot of approximation, and actually from culture to culture, these things differ so much. Patanjali is in search of this ultimate common thing. Is there something which is common to all humanity, to all the human evolution, from the beginning of humanity till the end of it, from east to west and from north to south, and he considers that, for example, ahimsa, which is non-violence, no injury, no killing, is one thing which is common. He simply says you cannot get over ahimsa. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, in whichever religion you are, ahimsa remains valid from a yogic standpoint. That's why it's exactly like Patanjali claims, I have boiled down all the morals and ethics of this world, and I have reached to some things which are like the headlines. The things boiled down to the very essential things. As you know, many of these yamas and niyamas, but especially the yamas, are related to producing karma. If you remember from our yoga courses, yama represents the five yamas, they represent the attitude of the human being to the others, to the environment, because the things that I am violent or not, I tell the truth or not, I am committing theft or not, and the others, are referring to our relationship to the others, basically, to the environment. And that is why Everything which we do or not do right according to yama and niyama produces karma. If we, or the most obvious one being of course the term of violence. <coughs> if we commit acts of violence such as killing someone, 
we produce a karma which will backfire on us sooner or later and may destroy completely our spiritual progress in that period of time. And therefore, Patanjali again is very keen on this. He says, these yamas, he speaks about the yamas, not the niyamas, remember, that's significant. These yamas, he says, which I have given to you here, have no change because of circumstance, time, birth, or anything like this. It's a very big statement because Patanjali claims thus to have obtained the ultimate ethical system, the, the ultimate moral system, something which is independent on any background or things which I have said. That is, of course, an arguable statement, but on the other hand, it seems that Patanjali gives to us the ultimate spiritual ecology, the ultimate spiritual rules for not creating a disharmony, a negative karma. As I told in the first month lectures, the yogis believe sometimes that yama and niyama are the way in which you would spontaneously behave if you would be enlightened. If you would be fully enlightened, then yama and niyama would be what you would naturally do anyhow, because that's what it feels like. It's some sort of the natural order of the universe, the natural order of things. And because of this, yama and niyama gets a much, much bigger importance. For example, you can, either you come from a Jewish or Christian environment, be interested in studying the Ten Commandments, because allegedly the finger of God wrote them on stone tablets for Moses. That's right, but Patanjali says, I have gone beyond all even these religious things. It's like the Yamas and Niyamas, you cannot go more fundamental than that. Surely, it's a big statement. Uh, the human spirit is ultimately infinite. We cannot say that somebody in the history of mankind would not be able to do better than Patanjali. Patanjali is not the first and not the last, and therefore, what Patanjali did, somebody else will be able to do better. But until that day comes, Patanjali, in his efforts of systematization, has attempted this big human feat to find out a morality which is scientific, which is beyond um, cultural or religious distinctions or any other distinctions. That is why he says they should be, his opinion is they should be universal, and actually he continues by saying, and thus they become the great vow. Never forget that Patanjali writes this at a time when Buddhism is coming up and it is a great hit. And because of this, Patanjali puts some of his things in a language which equates yoga with things from Buddhism. In Buddhism you have the great vow. The great vow is the great vow of becoming a Buddha, the great vow of overcoming the suffering of the world. Later it is transformed into the vow of the Bodhisattva in Tibetan Buddhism. But the great vow is the great vow to attain enlightenment. It is the great vow to curb suffering. 
It is the great vow to attain compassion. It is the great vow to grace the world. And basically, the great vow is also in Buddhism a, a certain conformity with the moral and ethical things of Buddha. Like Buddha speaks about right speech, right thinking, right action, right, right corporeal action. And those are like the vows which you take. I vow to practice the right action, the right speech, the right uh, thinking, and so on. And here, Patanjali simply says, well, this is the great vow. Yama and Yama, the way I have defined it. He says, it is the great vow. In the moment when you decide to follow Yama, <coughs> you have taken the great vow. The great vow is equivalent with following Yama. Again, he did not define Niyama. That's why I say only Yama. Those five, which refer to our relationship to the outer world, the relationship to the others, they Patanjali claims from the standpoint of yoga, this is the equivalent of the great vow from Buddhism, which also says a lot, because here we are not doing a formal commitment, you are not taking a vow, but he wants to say, we yogis, we also take the great vow, only that we take the great vow by simply committing ourselves to the practice of yama. We commit ourselves to non-violence, non-theft, and the untruthfulness, non-theft, and the others, and because of this, we are taking the great vow. Therefore, it is a beautiful, it's a bit of a bold statement, this sutra, because in both Patanjali says this is the equivalent of the religious things from Buddhism. He again refers strictly to Buddhism here, and at the same time he claims that he has given to us a universal through something which comes from the higher chakras, from the higher spheres of consciousness, and which represents a universally valid truth. This being said, let us continue. Then he goes in the next sutra and he simply defines the ni-yamas by simply saying purity, contentment, austerity, spiritual study and aspiration, full aspiration, self-offering to God constitutes the five ni-yamas. Again, there is no mystery. Everything you have been taught in the first month corresponds to these. Shaucha, Santosha, Tapas, Svadhyaya and Ishvara Pranidana which are commended in full lectures in the first month, they all of them represent the five niyamas, and there is no deviation in what we teach in this school to the way, to the titles which Patanjali gives to those. That is why this sutra is again just a canonic confirmation, but there is nothing additional that I wish to comment on it, because the idea is very familiar to all of you, or it should be. And in the sutra number 33, Finally, Patanjali hits a great truth and he hits one of the real deep things to be debated upon. He seems to refer to the Niyamas. I don't know if you can see in your mind the structure, but the Sutra number 30 says, Ahimsa Satyam Asteya and the others are the Yamas. And then he says, these ones are universal in terms of birth, place, time, and they are the great vow. And then he, he goes 
in the next sutra and he says, Sahusha, Santosha, Tapas and the others are the Niyamas. And now he comes with this sutra, which simply would show logically, structurally, that what Patanjali says here is his comment to the Niyamas. He defined the five yamas and then he made the sutra as a comment. These five yamas are the great vow and they are universal. And now he defines the five niyamas and he makes a comment to that. Some commentators believe that this comment which comes now and which I did not read yet, the sutra number 33, refers both to the yamas and to the niyamas. This is arguable and both are possible. But still, from the logical structure, it seems that here Patanjali considers that the comment which he will make in the Sutra number 33, it refers mostly to the problems which appear in the Niyamas. As about the problems which appear in Yamas, he said, when going to the Yamas, such as non-violence, truthfulness and this, it is observed that place, time, birth and other factors tend to cause hindrance in the practice of Niyamas. As I said, somebody goes in a war and suddenly says, well now non-violence doesn't apply anymore because I'm a soldier in an army. Therefore, people tend to bend it so those were the typical obstacles for it. And now he would want to tell us something about the typical obstacles for Niyama. Niyama is defined in yoga as the attitude to oneself. The things which you do. Purity. Shaucha. This is something which you can choose to cultivate purity, or if not you don't cultivate purity, and you decide on which levels, if it's physical, etheric, emotional, mental, or what kind of purity you give. Contentment is an inner attitude. If you want to cultivate santosha, you cultivate santosha, and if you don't cultivate santosha, you don't cultivate. You can still be non-violent and truthful and non-theft and so on, although you cultivate or not contentment. If you cultivate contentment, that's your attitude to yourself, is what you do to yourself. So is purity. So is tapas. So is spiritual study, so is aspiration, Ishvara Pranidana, the surrender to God. It's something which you do to yourself, you cultivate it or not. That's why Niyama is again more like internal, and that is why Patanjali seems to imply that when you want to cultivate purity, when you want to cultivate Santosha, contentment, when you want to cultivate Tapas, when you want to cultivate the others, Svadhyaya, Ishvara, Pranidana, there will also appear some obstacles, but of another kind. And those obstacles of another kind seem to Patanjali to be uh, obstacles of your thoughts, of your emotions, what you think, what you feel, like I don't feel like doing this, I can't do this, I don't feel good, and all the excuses which we have plenty of today, so much more in the modern world than at the time when Patanjali wrote this. The funny thing is that you will see that the point which comes is very relevant for all your evolution and yoga practice, and funny is that in the time of Patanjali, Vyasa and some of the commentators, they wrote very briefly about it because to them, 
It was so clear, it was so simple, it was so straightforward. Today, it is not so, and you are going to see that much of your agony in spiritual evolution, as well as much of the agony of the world, resides precisely around this mode point. So let's say that technically what follows applies to the niyamas, and that some commentators said, well, even the yamas are conditioned by the same thing, non-violence, truthfulness, and the others, which sounds logical at a certain level. Let's see exactly what it is, so you can see the understanding of it. This sutra is one of the real, real important practical sutras in the Yoga Sutra, and it is something which you should remember often. Sutra number 33 of chapter 2 says, when the mind gets disturbed by evil ideas, it's a word which can be translated as sin, passion, one should practice cultivating their opposites. In Sanskrit, this being expressed by the concept pratipaksha bhavana. Pratipaksha bhavana, bhavana means emotion generally, and pratipaksha bhavana means the opposite emotion. This is a capital thing in spirituality, especially today. The modern human being has become very, very vulnerable to this thing of emotions. As I often complain to you, especially in this new age-ish environment, some people cultivate or preach this emotionalism to a level where emotions become king. And yet every logical analysis shows that while the emotion is putting us in touch with the waves of energy of the universe, like in self-suggestion in yoga, if you do something with emotion, then it will work, it will become powerful, and therefore emotion is like the fuel of existence. At the same time, emotions are problematic, and they are not king. For example, there can be situations where your mind knows something and your emotion tells you something else. A typical example is that one of you is, for example, a Christian believer and you have a duality. Your mind knows that God loves you because Jesus and the Christian saints have said God loves human beings and wants their salvation. Or if you want to put it more in a Sunday school type of thing, you can also simply say, I know that Jesus loves me because he was paying to have loved the whole humanity. Right. And then, you are having a miserable day, you are having spiritual doubt, you are falling in a pit, and something in you says, I'm alone, I'm depressed, God doesn't love me. Everybody has forgotten me. There is no God. There is no love. There is no happiness. There is no nothing. For I feel simply miserable, depressed, and all the things which come with it. Which one of them should I go for? Because my emotion sucks. My emotion is a very bad emotion. It simply says, take a knife and slice your arteries. Because I want to suicide. Nothing works. Everything is terrible. Everything is dark. And my mind comes from somewhere and says, no, 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 you are all wrong, you feel wrong. I, in a certain lucid way, I know that I must be wrong. 
I must be feeling wrong. I don't know what stupid thing I have or what resonance with what crazy energy I'm having today, but fact is that there comes a feeling which contradicts my common sense. There comes a feeling which contradicts everything I know in terms of spirituality. And then actually I am split. The emotional part of me keeps telling me, no, leave me alone, no, it's not true, no, I'm bad, no, I don't want, no, nobody loves me and so on. And the mind says, hey, but Walter, dear, you know that this is so. You know that this is just a transient emotion. You know that this is the full moon or God knows what's happening right now. And you are just having a bad moment. And yesterday you didn't feel like this. And in three days from now you probably again won't feel like this. And therefore, sometimes I'm split. It doesn't happen often so dramatically as I define it. Because usually there is a synchronization between the koshas or the bodies of the human being. But nevertheless, <clears throat> and sometimes when I am depressed, I even think shit because I am depressed. Not only that I am having a bad emotion, but I am having a bad mind as well. Which is really tragic because that's usually when I do the biggest mistakes of my life. When both my emotions and my mind are going into dust, then I am only a very powerful spirit can resist to that kind of pressure. And therefore, I'll come back to that in a second. <coughs> but I gave especially this shocking example to show of an extreme case in which I'm split. I'm like a schizophrenic. My astral body is depressed, impure, terrible, and says, oh, I feel horrible. And my mental body is still clear and sharp. And it says, no, no, but I know very clearly that the truth is like this. Therefore, sometimes I know that I have to choose. I simply have to take a mental act of saying my emotions are lying to me. And I have to, yes, I feel like shit. And you know what? I'm going to feel like shit for another three days. And then it's going to be over. Because this is some energy which comes and goes. And either I know enough yoga to cut it off now, or if not, I will simply have to stand it. It's exactly like I'm having a headache, and I have to stand there and endure the headache, because I've got no painkillers. And I'm sitting there and saying, well, this headache will go on for two days, three days, and then it will blow itself off. It's nasty to stay with a headache for three days, but you can still do it. It's nasty to stay with a shitty emotional state in you, but you can still do it from a certain level. Well, it's not always the case. Unfortunately, the modern world has given away the reins of it. You see, in the old days, people were being taught that the last refuge is faith, that you always have theology or something. And if you feel like this, you should go to the priest or to the Brahmin or somebody and they are going to remind you some of the great truths of your religion. And they are going to say, I'm sorry dear that you feel bad, but you know that Jesus loves you. And it's like then you have the choice to say, ah, bollocks, you're just talking nonsense, which people 500 years wouldn't have dared to do. And that's why people prefer to hammer, to hit on the head of their emotions. To say, see, here, here, you stupid emotion, 
This is what the priest told me, that God loves me, that Jesus loves me. So shut the fuck up because I don't want to listen to you. People had a kind of motivation to kill their negative emotions in the name of their belief. But in modern times, together with skepticism and lack of faith, people have not such a strong belief and sometimes they don't have any belief whatsoever or they have a fuzzy uh, set of beliefs which is almost equal to zero. And then as soon as people are hit by very disturbing emotions, people don't find the strength to fight with them anymore. Because if you were a staunch Christian or Jew or Muslim or Buddhist or what you were, every time you would have a horrible emotion which went uh, against Yama and why not against Niyama, purity, contentment, tapas, and all those beautiful ideals, you would stand up and say, it's not possible. Buddha said that, pam, padam, padam. Jesus said that, da, 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 da. the Ten Commandments are that, da, 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 da. and then you would simply put a lid on your emotions and say, this is unacceptable. Therefore, you would find a higher instance to correct the lower instance. Once the human beings have lost this self-discipline of submitting themselves to a clear idea, like at least I should have some clear spiritual ideas in my mind, automatically it becomes very, very difficult to control the emotions. It's difficult to control the emotions because the first thing which lacks is Actually, that I don't want to control my emotions. I remember one of my pupils in the old days, I remember I was talking to this person, it was a woman, it doesn't matter, it makes no difference if it was a woman or a man, and uh, this person I was having serious problems with detachment in relationships. And I kept on preaching the well-known yogic and tantric truth about the value of detachment. And I could not understand why this person was so refractory, because this person was like retarded spiritually. It's like I was telling a hundred times the same thing, which was very clear, and the person was supposed to have understood it, and tried hard to go for it. And then eventually, after we keep arguing for months in a row on this issue, the person blurts out the actual truth. She tells me she was having problems in her relationship and she was always asking for counsel. And I was telling her, you suffer because of the lack of detachment. Why don't you try for one week or three months, for God's sake, to be detached? You know, why don't you verify me? Test me on this because I'm not talking rubbish. It's not my personal advice. It comes from a whole spiritual tradition, what I'm telling you now. It's something which has been verified for centuries. And then she blurted out, exasperated. She said, well, maybe I actually don't want to be detachment because I think that you become the fool of other people if you are detached. Ah, <clears throat> that is therefore the explanation. She was not detached, not because the detachment doesn't work, but because she didn't try wholeheartedly, because she actually, first of all, had to be convinced that detachment is right and it's worth seeking for it. And therefore she was lacking the faith. She was a modern person, confused in the universe of the modern world, 
looking for a structure, looking for a system, looking for a truth to which you can put your back to and rely on, lean on. Therefore, this is a very serious problem of the modern world. Many people have a kind of complacent faith, like, yeah, I do believe in this and that, but actually when it becomes to putting it in practice, it's like very, very difficult. You see how much the religions of today seem hypocrite. Christianity since centuries kills and kills and kills. Other and other religions do all the things. In Buddhism where purity was sought so frantically, people eat meat and kill animals and sometimes they skin them alive and do all kinds of things like where is the famous compassion? What are we talking about? Compassion to all the sentient beings and then you keep killing and culling animals and eating them and so on when you know that the original people who were at the base of this were vegetarian and were abstaining from killing animals and stuff like this. And therefore what I'm telling here is this. Modern religiousness, first of all, is lacking the real motivation. Like people are wobbly because they simply say, well, shall I really do that? Did it really help anybody? Did it really serve any purpose? And that is why the emotions become rampant. Because normally people will say, no, I don't accept this emotion for a second. It is unacceptable. It is blasphemous. It is negative. It is damaging. Now, everything goes. We live in a wishy-washy world where everything goes. If you are going to watch uh, this new video, The Secret, we are planning to play it in the school as well, periodically, there you are going to see that these people who speak about the self-discipline of the mind, they emphasize an idea which others give as well, that you cannot afford for a single moment to think certain negative thoughts. But it's really like for a single moment. Because it's like somebody would tell you, don't eat shit. And you will say, yeah, but you know, from time to time the spoon is glitching and I'm eating a piece of shit from time to time. <laughs> if you don't eat shit, you don't eat shit. You don't even a milligram of shit because it will spoil all your day and it will be abomination. That's why with the mind, it is the same. I actually do not want to have certain ugly emotions, not at all. How creative the human spirit is and the new religion. There is a book of one of these management gurus called Robin Sharma. The book is called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. And it's an allegoric teaching to people who want to apply the rules of self-control, suggestion, mind control, yoga, into big-time business, into corporate business, into the modern world. And there, the guy is very smart, because he hits on the new religion. If I'm asking you to do this for God, for Shiva, for Mohammed, for uh, Kali, or for something, you are going to be wobbly, because many of you do yoga and you don't even know if God exists. It's kind of a thing which seems to be a probability for some of you. But Robin Sharma is really smart. He does it for money, because money is the new God of modern times. In God we trust, in this God we trust. Money, the buck. And therefore he says, you want to make the big buck? 
you should not allow yourself to have one single negative thought about your business and success in your business. He is radical. He says not even one thought. Not even one thought. It's like, wow. It means that the business people who applied this, who applied this, they are powerful, Manipura, Ajna, self-control people. That's why they have success and they make tons of money. Because they are people who can actually control. They go to do some job and they take over a business and it's a mess. And they put their hands in the head and they say, my God, this thing is going to the dog. Um, no, I want to make a million dollars. You can't think like this. It is possible. It shall be done. I will have a... They immediately twist it. People like you doing yoga, doing tantra, all the time going all kind of shitty emotions. But a businessman wanting to make a gazillion dollars, he doesn't allow himself for a second to think. He's stronger, he's more disciplined than the so-called spiritual practitioners. Only that his motivation is money. This is his God. His God is money. And in the name of that, he is ready to chop off his right arm. He is ready to cut himself from any. His mind, like everybody's mind, keeps producing shit. Oh, this business will go to the dogs. Oh, this business will never succeed. And he says, shut up, shut up, shut up. I don't want to hear that. This business will succeed because I'm practicing the methods of self-suggestion and mind control. And he succeeds. And somebody else does tantra and gets suddenly hit by some shitty emotion. And instead of saying, shut up, shut up, shut up, it will succeed instantaneously. I will succeed. I don't want to hear this shit. Nobody does that because the faith is less than the faith of the man who wants to make the million dollars. That guy believes in his million dollars because that is his God. But the other one, the spiritual practitioner says, yeah, right, I wish I wouldn't feel any negative emotion, uh, but maybe it's not so important as they make it, because, you know, and therefore I am tolerant to this. I'm tolerating all these negative things. Remember that the people who were very religious in the old days, as well as people who were of great mental discipline, they were not tolerating. It was like a fanatic thing. It's exactly like you would be a religious Christian in a church and your voice suddenly wants to stand up and say, Oh, fuck Jesus. You'd immediately slap yourself over the mouth. You'd hit yourself with a brick and you say, You fucking, you know, who is coming up with my mouth saying, I will pick myself up in front of the mirror if this ever happens again. Like they would be violently adamant against anything negative like this because simply it is inacceptable under any circumstance. But inacceptable under any circumstance does not exist for people today. It's like everything goes. If you are having shitty emotions, you would stay depressed and shitty for days in a row thinking all the negative things and nobody stops you because you don't stop yourself. That is why Patanjali and Vyasa, the commentator, they go very easily towards this. It's like it's very clear. When you have a negative emotion, when the mind gets disturbed by evil ideas, sin, passion, one should practice cultivating their opposites. Pratipaksha Bhavana. It's like it's very simple and very straightforward. In modern times, we are having a huge problem with this. 
much bigger. Patanjali considered this, of course, like if you are a smart person, you understand this and you would not accept negativity for a second. Because negativity is like self-sabotage. And who would be stupid to self-sabotage themselves? Why waste your life in giving yourself conflicting signals? 60% of you says, let's go forward, and 40% of you says, oh, let's be stupid. Then better solve your conflict before you start, you know, because at least decide. When you want to go forward, you want to go forward 100%, not 50-50, so that you make two steps forward, two steps backward, because you are simply wasting your time. And therefore, for Patanjali, it is very clear. We want to control the negative thoughts and emotions and all the evil and the sin and the impurity, and this is the method to do it. Basta. It's as simple as that. Modern people indulge in it, first of all, because we lost this backbone of faith, of knowing that we really want to do this. If we really want to make ten million dollars, then in the name of that we can summon us. But if we want to reach Samadhi, ah, Samadhi is some sort of fuzzy goal. I'm doing a little bit here, a little bit there, and this and that. Therefore, it is important for you to understand this. This rampancy of emotions is very easy to control. But in modern times, because of not practicing Vijnana Mayakosha, the intellectual body, because of not thinking philosophically, because not having a proper life philosophy, because of not believing firmly in some spiritual principles and other things like this, then it's exactly like we accept that our Vijnana Mayakosha should, the mental body, should become weak and fuzzy, and then the Manomaya Kosha, the astral body, takes over, and people are much more emotional than really knowing what they want in this life, because everybody gets depressed. The people who went in the desert and became great ascetics, they must have become depressed and doubtful, because they were human beings. If you think that only the supermen and the superwomen did meditation in caves and deserts and ashrams and monasteries and became enlightened, then it means that you are telling to yourself that you have no chance to start with because you are not superman or superwoman. While that is not true. A wise man has said all those things that are human are familiar to me, are known to me. It's like I am a human being, like all of you. Jesus felt fear. Jesus felt doubt. Others and others, there are so many examples about great, great, great ones who felt human emotions. Therefore, it's not that these people did not feel the emotions, it's that these people controlled them and they did not allow the negative, sabotaging emotions to play games with them. Because if not, these, either the astral body with its own samskaras, vasanas, impurities, kleshas, or sometimes the influence of the full moon, or I don't know what astrological circumstance, or the influence of different negative spirits that are trying to play games with you, it can give you all kinds of shitty emotions, depending on your karma and on your state in evolution. And then some people simply collapse, because they believe in those emotions, and they surrender to them instead of standing up to them. 
if it wouldn't be possible to control those negative thoughts and emotions, it wouldn't really be possible to be a moral or ethical person. It would not be possible to refrain from violence from time to time. But the problem is that we tell the people to refrain from violence, verbal at least, okay, we don't have so many problems with physical violence among the pupils of this school, but still some people are fighting with verbal violence and mental violence, and people still do it now and then. And why do they do it? Because if they would have the feeling that if they do some violence, their right hand is going to fall off right now, they wouldn't do it. They would stay away from it as from fire. But because they don't believe that it's so important, they allow themselves to tread over the border a little bit and to do some compromise from time to time. That is why the problem in controlling the emotions is not the fact that they can be or not, because it's very easy, as I'm going to show you in a second. The problem is that people most often don't really want to because they don't feel motivated to do, and they think it's a kind of a hysteric exaggeration that you really, really, really should control all those negative emotions. Ah, take it easy. It can be done also more easily. That is to be debated upon. That is why here is an example in which this is an example given by one of the great NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, practitioners of this day, Tony Robbins, in his book, Unlimited Power, he gives this simple example which shows how easy it is for people to control the emotions. He says, I have made a center, which is a, a, a workshop center in those years, probably many things have changed since then, but in his book at the time of Europe, he says, I made a workshop and course center where I'm making courses for the weekend, and he checked it is actually kind of my villa, my place. It's on the Pacific Coast in California. It's a real beautiful, expensive place. And when people come to there in the weekend, I'm doing courses there. And people, Anthony Robbins was practicing some high prices like this, and he says people are coming, parking their cars in the parking of my place there, and then I greet them at the door, and I say, welcome, you are Walter, whatever, I'm glad to see you, welcome to our workshop, we start tomorrow morning, you know, I'm talking to them some brief administrative things, and then while we're walking towards the room, to show them the room, I'm asking passingly, uh, what seems to be your problem, why are you joining this workshop? And then he says, the person does the perfect self-hypnosis. In a second, they curve their shoulders, they go in a really shitty body language, their voice is becoming the victim voice, and they start saying, you know, I'm like this and like this, and, I, and they start going into the problem. And he says, I let them go for 15 seconds, and then when it starts becoming serious, I'm telling them, whoa, whoa, you know, you're not paying me right now, this is something which we sort out tomorrow. I was just asking you roughly, like this, what is the problem? We don't have time now to go into it. And then the person straightens up again and says, oh, okay, oh, sorry, I just thought. And then he says, I catch them. In that second, I point the finger at them and say, see, exactly as you stopped your shitty mood right now, by just simply saying, oh, if it's not the time now to talk about <laughs> it, I will, I will just behave normal. So I can't switch it off. I can behave normal very easily. Exactly as you did it now, you can do it till the end of your life. 
There is no problem to, call, to, curb, to curb the negative emotions. You can stop them many times. Any human being has the power. The problem is that sometimes the human beings like to indulge in the negative emotions. They are masochistic. And they don't find any excuse, I'm sorry, they don't find any justification to get out of the negative emotions. And then they indulge, they linger in those negative states which are unworthy and counterproductive. And Anthony Robbins says, see, you can stop your negative emotion now. I just told you, no, it's no time. You didn't give me money for this. Your workshop starts tomorrow. And you immediately straighten up and put a smile and say, okay, it's not today. Then let's talk about football or weather or something. So, why don't you do that every time when you get this negative shitty thing? Ah, because something in you says, oh, maybe we should sit a little bit in this blues. And no, you shouldn't. It's just a lie. If you would have a justification like this is a sin, you'd jump up like burn and say, oh, the sin is upon me. No, I don't want to hear about that. Go away from me, Satan. No, I don't want to be in this negative emotion. It's possible. But if you have the justification, that's why the problem of the modern people is not to teach them Pratipaksha Bhavana. Because Pratipaksha Bhavana is elementary. The problem of the modern people is that you should find out if you want to practice Pratipaksha Bhavana. It is very easy to purify yourselves. It is very easy to reject negative emotions. Nobody in this place needs to suffer. Suffering is not necessary. Rumi says it. There is no need to suffer. God is here. There is no need to suffer, really. The suffering is something which you are asking for and you are accepting it because it doesn't sound so wrong and you are not... If somebody would pour, would drop a drop of acid on your skin or if somebody would touch you with a red hot piece of iron, oh, you jump like this and immediately stop that contact. Then why don't you stop the contact with the red hot iron of negative emotions. What use is there to dabble into them, to stay into them? Here, I must also say that the method proposed, suggested by Patanjali, is the classical majority method, and it actually has an alternative, like our classical lectures about two alternatives, a primitive straightforward method, and the sophisticated know-how opposite method. I must admit that here Patanjali talks from the standpoint of classical yoga. This is the orthodox method which he recommends, and it's the method which 95% of the spiritualists use, which means there is another method, and unfortunately modern psychology thought it got a hint of it and started preaching it. But unfortunately, modern psychology did not go to the bottom of it, or at least people who study modern psychology amateurishly, they did not go to the bottom of it. That simply means, instead of opposing a negative emotion or thought, you can do like in judo or in jujutsu, like in tantra and in karma yoga. Instead of refraining, you can go with it. But you want to go with it in a way in which it eliminates it. For example, when you want to make tantric yoga, you do not want to make tantric yoga so that you should become sexually obsessed, a sexual maniac. You want to do tantric yoga so that you can rise to an angelic level where you transcend sexuality. 
you don't want to just go into sex. You want to go beyond sex through sex. Therefore, it's exactly like in the mechanical example. If somebody is pushing you, you don't just want to fall. You want to fall and throw your enemy over the shoulder, like in judo. There is a continuation to that. You have to get out on the other side. You have to get to the other shore. Therefore, I want to say this. There are two main methods of dealing with the negativity, with the negative resonances of the human being. And those two different methods are, one, the orthodox one, which is called Pratipaksha Bhavana in Yoga Sutra, and which is applied by most religions, which simply say when you are confronted with something negative, you have to create the opposite of it as much as possible. And you simply have to fight it frontally, frontal struggles, not acceptance. I'm going to cultivate this. I'm going to explain practically how that is done. But now for once, I'm going to start with the other one, which is the peculiar method, the rare one. Unfortunately, the peculiar method has been misinterpreted, and some people are using it for, as an excuse. It is actually an excuse used by the subconscious mind, by the negativity, by the demonic entities, or whoever produces that negative emotion, to practice the tantric method insufficiently so that it does not yield the proper result. And then actually the result of it is fatal. It is bad. Basically the principle of the tantric method says it is possible to cancel the negative emotion if you go through it, but if you go through it until it reaches breakpoint, until it explodes through its own intensity. It is exactly like in the oil rigs, when they have a fire in an oil field, they just explode something in the middle of the fire, and the fire is extinguished through an explosion. You put the fire out by fire, by even more fire. It's exactly like when you have water in your ear, and the doctor injects more water, and the whole water comes out because it kind of relies together. You, you eliminate the water from the ear with more water. In this way you can eliminate your fear with more fear. You can eliminate your anger with more anger. The only problem is that if that fear, anger, or other negativity which you use is not sufficient, and it's very difficult to make it sufficient, then you will not obtain any result. If, for example, you just throw a burning match or a piece of paper, take a piece of paper, light it, and then throw it in a burning oil field. Will it put out the oil field? No. So it's not enough to add a little fire. You have to add a barrel of nitroglycerin, which should explode like really badly. And then the fire goes off because of the chemical processes involved. Therefore, it is possible to eliminate your fear, but by putting together with it an amount of so big fear that it will bring you close to your death. And then it is possible to eliminate it. This principle means that to be able to eliminate negative emotions through the very amplification of that emotion, you have to go to the level of a crisis. If you don't reach the level of break-point crisis, you will not wipe it out. 
That is why people in modern times, they have taken this from psychology and they practice some absolute nonsense. They, you ask them, why do you stay in this stupid, shitty emotion instead of coming out of it? And they say, uh, I felt that I have to go through it a little bit to learn something, to experience something. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. You do not learn anything. It's like a gramophone needle which goes in the wrong ditch and the gramophone thing makes the tip, the tip, the tip, the tip. And if you let it spin like this, the ditch will simply become, that, can that channel will simply get scratched deeper and deeper. If you pour water, I'm saying it again, a good image is like this. Let's suppose that there is some water running from somewhere, periodically. Every time when it rains, there is some water coming down these hills. And the water is creating a small ditch. It's creating a small ditch like the water does, a small canyon. And every time the water comes, that canyon becomes deeper and deeper. That's the negative emotion. And some people say, if I'm going to stay with this negative emotion, I'm going to heal it. No. If you are going to pour water again and again through the same ditch, the ditch will become just deeper. And the negative emotion which you had, not a thousand times, but five thousand times, simply becomes more easy to have. It's like you are training in anti-yoga. It's like you are training in negative resonances all the time. The way to destroy that ditch will be to flood the hill. If you flood the hill, there will be a rush which will wipe out anything on that hill, including that little ditch. Therefore, you have to come with so much of it that it comes out of the old ditch and it simply floods everything. Therefore, if you want to eliminate fear, it's not enough just to confront yourself with some fear. If you want to eliminate jealousy, it's not enough just to sit there and be jealous another hour extra. If you want to confront yourself with depression, it's not enough just to be depressed for another three hours, because those will just make that, that emotion will come even easier next time. You make that emotion more accessible to you. The principle is, is that you should take it to a point where you feel that your head is going to explode and you are going to die. If you can be fearful at the level where you feel, my God, I'm going to die, I'm getting a heart attack, that may eliminate your fear forever. The problem with this method is the following. This method is challenging our instinct of conservation because it brings us to the limit of damage. And therefore, nobody dares to go there by themselves. It's extremely rare that some people would have the stamina and the strength to put themselves to the point where they would go there. I gave in a lecture, in one of the teaching lectures, <coughs> this thing which is a perfect illustration of the method, <coughs> which is known to me in my childhood. It has been applied to a friend of mine. The, I knew his family, and I heard this story firsthand. I know it directly. A friend family of my parents, the man in that family was a chain smoker. He was an inveterate smoker. And apparently, although he was astrologically a lion and a man with a lot of pride and manipura and willpower, he never managed to find the resourcefulness or the willpower to give up smoking. 
this family was having a boy who was a very intelligent boy, very skilled in mathematics, physics, a real hope, a real future scientist. Indeed, he has developed in a very, very highly scientific person. And the family, he was the only kid, and the family was, his father and mother, was like, he was like the apple of their eye. He, they were really, really over uh, taking care of this boy, so he should have everything. And one day his father, when this guy was 12 years old, catches him smoking. This little boy at 12, he was playing with cigarettes, like every young teenager would do, just to demonstrate that he could smoke and to find out what it was. The father got so desperate that the child will start smoking because of his example, and that he basically fucked up because he was a bad father, and he got so desperate that his child will get ill, and his child will not be able to quit smoking like he was unable to, that he suddenly intuitively resorted to that method. He simply grabbed the child by a hand, he dragged him in a room, the mother became paranoid, he said, what are you doing to my child? And he said, stay out of this. Of course, she wouldn't stay out. He locked himself in the room with the child and the mother was knocking at the door and shouting on the other side, what's happening in there, what are you doing, beast, and so on. And the guy grabbed the child and put him on the chair, took out his package of cigarettes and he said, you want to smoke? I'll show you what smoking is. Smoke, here in front of me. And he forced his child to smoke five cigarettes one after another. The child started vomiting and fainted, and since that day he never touched a cigarette again until his adult age. This is the method, this is the tantric method of wiping it out to the excess. If no child, if this child would have wanted to quit smoking, he wouldn't have been able to do it. Actually, the idea is more ironic. You can ask yourself, why didn't this man do it to himself like this, to quit smoking? That's why, because he needed somebody stronger than him to come and grab him by the throat and force him to smoke. There wasn't such a person because he was an independent adult and he didn't have the heart to do it to himself. He didn't have the power because his self-conservation would stop him before he would start throwing up and puking because his self-conservation would say, I feel really bad. Well, when he felt really bad, then he should have been obliged to go one more or two more. He didn't have the power to do that to himself. That's why it's very difficult to apply this method to yourself. This is why this is usually in the Indian and Tibetan tradition, it was applied by the guru. Some gurus of the tantric type were this tough type of people, and they would push people in some sort of madness crisis. If the teacher was wrong, or the pupil was not prepared, it could result in damage, such as the one with fear, the famous chod. If the teacher would send you to do chod and you are not prepared, you could as well die. And the teacher, if he was irresponsible, he would strike his shoulders and say, well, tough luck. They have in some traditions of India, this Shava Sadhana, that some tantric toffee, they should get a corpse, sit on the chest of the corpse in the middle of the night in a lonely place, in a haunted place, out in the jungle where there is nobody, so you can really feel the fear because you are alone, ten kilometers away from anybody else, and there is nobody to help you but the spirits of nature. And you sit on the corpse, and you make a lamp in the mouth of the corpse, 
uh, candle, lamp, uh, oil, lamp, and you meditate. And actually, when you sit on the chest of the corpse, you sit in lotus on the chest of the corpse. The corpse sometimes moves because the air comes out and it makes some sounds like it's breathing. And actually, some of them claimed in their hysteria that the corpse sometimes gets animated and it starts moving. And the idea in the tantric circles of India is, if you do this before your time, you can die. And there are cases of somebody who did and died, and then somebody else came and found the corpse and did it and got enlightened. And the story was, the second one was prepared by many, many lifetimes of evolution and meditation, and he was ready, and the second one was a nurse who shouldn't have done that, because he was not right, he was too green for trying such a terrible experience. Therefore, this tantric methodology is part of these extreme methods, and that is why it is dangerous. It is, should not be done by teachers who are incompetent, the teacher who does this needs to be like an exorcist, needs to be a real powerful person with a huge control over energies and other such things. And therefore, this is a very problematic method which can easily result in accidents and problems. It has the only advantage that it is very fast. It's like an explosive method. This guy got his kid never to smoke again in half an hour. It didn't take him more than half an hour to stop his kid from smoking. So it works quick. But the disadvantage is that it is risky. It can give a lot of problems and accidents. And it might not work if you not do it properly. And that is why generally spiritualists and yogis prefer the other method. The other method, the orthodox method, the Pratipaksha Bhavana, is the method which always works. It takes more time, but it is without risk, and it always works. And that is why Patanjali here, he does not mention the Humpty Dumpty type of method, the exotic, explosive one, although that one exists, because that one can be practiced only by special teachers, in special conditions. And therefore, it's not something to be preached. And remember that some, in the psychotherapy, Freud and Jung and others like them, they spoke about the fact that if a negative emotion or memory is brought to a crisis, that person goes on the brink of madness, the things go on the brink of falling apart, exploding, everything is at the break point, and sometimes the person is just washed out clean like this, and that negative emotion stops. Like a crisis can clean something. Modern people, especially this new age-ish wishy-washy spirit, has interpreted things like, oh, you know, you just have to stay with this emotion. It doesn't work. You don't stay with negative emotions just like this half-tone. Either you tell them stop completely, or you go with them that way if you find a teacher or somebody to assist you in that, which is rare. And that is why we always say this method is rare and this method always works. That's why Patanjali is preaching the orthodox method, Pratipaksha Bhavana. Pratipaksha Bhavana, now that you understood, is simply a method which simply says every time when you are afflicted by sin, negative thought, whatever he calls it here. Let's read it again the way I translated. 
when the mind gets disturbed by evil ideas or sin or passion, one should practice cultivating their opposites. That simply says, you get, for example, afflicted by grief. You are suddenly having some very miserly thing, like this is mine, I don't want to give it away, why should everybody use mine? And so on, and you become really, really very possessive. And then you immediately say, well, I want to feel an emotion of generosity and not non-possessiveness. There is a huge catch to this, and many people don't understand it. For example, if I feel angry towards somebody, the opposite of it is that I'm going to feel love. I'm going to feel very loving. That, most often, is asking too much from the regular person. While that is possible, from the regular person is like asking really, really much. And that is why Pratipaksha Bhavana does not say that. That's what people mix up always. They simply say, I am angry at Walter. I want to smash his head off because he is an asshole and gave me a lot of pain. <coughs> and Walter is really punishable in my view. And now this guy is telling me, when you feel so angry, you should love Walter. I can't love Walter. Walter has done, Walter has raped my daughter. How can I love Walter? You know, kill him with my own hand. I don't want to love him. Are you not? Like, how can I love a man who did that? Pratipaksha Bhavana does not say that you should love Walter. Pratipaksha Bhavana says that what matters is your emotion, but not its targets. Pratipaksha Bhavana says that when you feel like hating Walter, you should love someone else. If you can love Walter, very good. It's an excellent exercise. It's perfect. But Pratipaksha Bhavana doesn't say that you should love the same person. Pratipaksha Bhavana says when you feel that you start grumbling against Walter and having anger and hate, you should immediately remember your boyfriend or girlfriend whom you love a lot. And you simply should say, I don't want to think of Walter, I want to think about wonderful Mary. And there I am, sending my love to Mary. In my system, hate was replaced by love. It doesn't mean that the hate was to one target and the love was to another target. That has no importance, because the target is something which my mind knows, but it is not something which affects the level of the feeling. The feeling, love is love, hate is hate, generosity is generosity, fear is fear, egoism is egoism, and all the rest. And that is why the point is, I feel hate, I should replace it with love. If indeed there is nobody that you can love, then you've got a big problem. If indeed you cannot feel love toward anybody, then you have a problem, because indeed you cannot replace. Then you should work yoga, activate your heart chakra, start feeling feelings of love, and then you will know what we are talking about. And therefore, Pratipaksha Bhavana is really simple. It simply says, every time a negative feeling, thought, emotion creeps in your mind, you should cut it as short as possible. The 
general students in Raja Yoga, they tell us one thing. Any thought which pops up in your mind is not guilty at the first moment of popping up. That means the mind bubbles like a siphon, like soda water. It keeps bubbling all the time. And half of the thoughts which your mind bubbles are shitty anyhow. So the problem is not that your mind comes up with some stupid idea. The problem is when you say, oh yeah, that is right, that was a very good bubble, let's stay on it a little bit and chew on it. Yeah, Walter, that asshole, yeah, yeah, and then you feed it, you chew on it, while you should have said, pump, hey Walter, yeah right, pump, this can go, I go, like you should cut it in the second one, not chewing on it. Simply stop it then and simply say, this thought is useless. It is unacceptable. It is self-sabotage. I'm wasting my time and my energy. I'll have to pay karma for this thought later. I'll have to purify myself later. Why should I burden my mind with such a stupid thought when I know that it's not good? And therefore, in the moment when it comes, if I have a pleasure, but here is the point, I'm calling your attention, and I'm sure you all know this, in the moment when we have certain bad thoughts, some of them we actually like them. It is a pleasure to think a little bit about Walter and what a kick in the balls and the piston the nose you are going to give him. And it's uh, it, like satisfied. That is in the moment when you start thinking the thought, you deliberately, you with your free will, accept that thought in your system for 25 seconds and you say, yeah, yeah, it's a pleasant idea to dwell upon. No. That you shouldn't do. Thoughts are coming. Shitty thoughts will come in your mind many times. In the moment when a shitty thought comes and you say, what a ridiculous thought. Hey, and you quit it. That thought has no power, no karma. And in that moment, that samskara, that vasana, that klesha will diminish until it will be consumed forever. The process of consuming it will take a while. We have to be sincere to say that some of your thoughts, negative and emotions, if they are very, very deeply rooted, they can take anything between six months to seven years to be rooted out of your system. That is why this is a duration word, a long word, and some people are tempted to the short method. Still, the long method works better and is more reliable. And that is why I have to know, yes, I am a person who has had many thoughts of hate, I am angry, I am having a fiery temperament, I snap very often, I know myself that I can be really poisonous in this way and in that way, and I am going to cut it. If it takes six months or two years or five years, I will cut this, because it stays in my power to cut it by creating this second nature, by educating myself. Therefore, the important thing is not to feed the thought further. But I'm telling you again, you will see that there is a pleasure to feed some thoughts further because of some of the resonances which we have. If you manage to stop that little perversion and not to feel this guilty pleasure of thinking that thought, but you simply jump off like the guy who wanted to make a million dollars. No! This thought I don't want to think. It's unacceptable. This thought will make me not make my million dollars. It's unacceptable. This is a depressive thought about my business, which I don't want to have. I want to think only positive thoughts about my business. 
because I want to succeed. That self-discipline. And the point is, if you have the motivation, as I said so much from the beginning, Therefore, if you have the motivation, you will not accept the thought for a single second in your mind, and you will simply say, I don't want to do this. It's immoral, it's against my religious principles, it's negative, it's self-sabotage, whatever you want to say, goes. And you say this, and you don't accept it, and in the next minute you turn to a positive thought, like I had, hey, you know what, I want to remember about my love for my girlfriend. See, I'm thinking of my girlfriend, how beautiful she is, how much I love her. I simply refuse to think of Walter. The thought of Walter comes, I'm thinking about something beautiful. And this will win the match in the end. This will replace, it's what the NLP today calls swishing. You are swishing to emotions. They, the NLP people say that you should even have a graphical image in which one swishes in the other. You should even hear a sound like when you flush a toilet or something, like something you make this and it makes phew. And this has become this, like to anchor it in a graphic way and so on. This has not been taught in yoga and if you want to try it in this way, feel welcome to apply the experience of NLP. But the yogis have simply said, swish or no swish, graphical things or not, you simply have to immediately replace the negative by the positive. In this way, the negative will not be given any more energy because those ideas of hate against Walter and against the whole world, because if you hate Walter, you are liable to hate anybody in this world. Remember, it's just the object of your feeling. Those ideas of hate are coming because in your Manipura Chakra, one of the spokes or the points of energy in it is polluted. And there is some part of your Manipura Chakra which resonates with the macrocosmic faith. Because exactly as there is cosmic love, unfortunately, but necessarily, there exists cosmic faith, which could be translated then as the devil, if the cosmic love is God. And the people who have faith, they simply resonate with the devil. That's all they do. They, their Manipura has an unpleasant Resonance is impure, and they fall in that resonance. Who wants to resonate with the devil? Nobody should want to want to resonate with the devil, because that's the worst idea you can ever have. That is why such an emotion is simply unacceptable. I don't want to resonate with the hate of this universe, with the darkness of this universe. I want to resonate always with what is beautiful. And if I would do it for a million dollars, then why shouldn't I do it for my soul? Because my soul is much more important than those blasted million dollars in the end. And that is why, once you have the motivation, you forbid yourself this resonance. And in the moment when you forbid yourself this resonance, in that moment, you start starving that point in your Manipura. And if it doesn't work today, and if it doesn't work tomorrow, and if it doesn't work the day after tomorrow, it simply starts getting worn out. Let's suppose that in a mountain, you have a canal, due some, of some energy. One of these clefts because water flew through it, as I said. And then suddenly somebody stops the water, and for the next hundred years, never water comes through that channel. What will happen? The wind, the erosion, the vegetation, and all the rest of the things 
will wipe that channel out in the end, and that channel will not exist. It will be swallowed by the landscape. In the same way, my negative thing in my Manipura, if I don't water it again, and watering it again means to allow that thought to dwell in me for a while, if I cruelly cut that thought every time it comes, and you can start with any thought, you can just declare war on one of your negative things, just one at a time. It's okay with all the others, but I don't want to have this. Okay, that one becomes your target. Every time you cut it off mercilessly, you do not accept that thought to be not even for two seconds in your mind. It comes, you laugh of it and let it go and turn towards the opposite of it. In the moment when you do that, you uproot it. You don't give it anything, it starves. The samskara, the vasana, which is in your subconscious mind, loses its energy. It's like a flower that you don't give water to. It withers, it shrinks, and then it goes to the level of the seed, and that seed will be eliminated at the time of the Nirvikalpa Samadhi, finally. And therefore, this is the way to eliminate the negative thoughts, starve them to death by replacing them immediately with their opposite. Actually, replacing them with the opposite even has a catalytic effect. It does more than just starving it, because it brings an energy which is exactly the opposite. It's exactly like you have minus and you bring plus. It's exactly like you have a color and then you come with a complementary color and the result is white. Therefore, bringing the opposite emotion makes this process even faster and even more efficient. If you just say no to the negative thought, that would be half. That would be the starving part. But you do the opposite part, and then you compensate with something else, also because the mind needs activity. And if you simply say no, 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 that's not good enough because the, that thought will keep trying to enter in the sphere of your consciousness. And therefore you immediately should replace it with something else. Pratipaksha Bhavana is simple and beautiful. It just requires one thing, that you should want to do it. If you do not want to stay away from negativity, and if you do not believe in the power of love and light, then you don't find motivation to do it, because it's like sometimes it's okay to have some negative thoughts. No, it isn't. Read, again, business sources and others, and you will see that even they are adamant on this, although they don't speak from a religious or spiritual standpoint. They simply say you can't allow any negative sabotaging thought. It's a matter of mental discipline. Therefore, Pratipaksha Bhavana is essential. You can do it. You can, every person here, there is none among you. If there would be someone among you who could not get out of their emotions, that person would be in the field of mental disease. Only people who are mentally ill at the level of personality disorders, such as going beyond maniodepressive like schizophrenic paranoia and borderline schizophrenia and things like this, only those people have no more control over themselves and when they are sweeped by some negative emotion, they are unable to stop it simply because there is nobody home. It's like their own ego or self, better said, is out of the picture. But else, every person who is reasonably sane has the power to stand against the negative emotion and replace it with something if you believe in it. If you believe like the Japanese samurai believed in their mission, 
If you believe like the Christian fundamentalists five centuries ago believed in their Christian stuff, then you can very easily do it because it's something that your very existence depends on it. Your very spiritual existence depends on it. If you are wishy-washy, you will not find so much determination to stand against this. Is it? What will stop So, this is a very, very big teaching that you have to meditate upon and remember that the human being can have access to this methodology. We'll stop now because it is late. I will want to make a small Ajna Chakra meditation again, another three, four minute meditation to fix some of the ideas presented here. I will continue next time with telling a few more things about Pratipaksha Bhavana and with the next sutra which completes and concludes this idea.